Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying Genesis as it leads into Exodus. It's a great sequel, and we hope to get you thinking about an old story in a new way. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Jericho Road. Uh, This class is also a podcast, so if you'd like to catch up on things that we've talked about way back in the last fall, beginning with the story of Genesis, uh, you can catch that up on your podcast app. Just search St. Luke's and be sure to spell out Saint. We also want to make this class as interactive as possible, so I want you to be sure and have a notepad and paper. Uh, We want you to ask us questions. You can actually send questions to me via email at rwebster at saint-lukes.com, and I'll do my best to work your questions into the future classes. And then also, we've got discussion questions at the end uh, so that you can talk about this with your family or friends or even a small group. We just want to make this as as interactive in this time of distance uh, as we can, because I sure do miss seeing you here in this room. Since we've begun in the fall, we've been talking about Exodus as a national story. Both Genesis and Exodus are national stories to give the Hebrew people hope during the time of exile. Uh, They were losing their identity when they lost everything and were taken far away to Babylon about 600 years before Jesus' birth. And so they told old stories that revealed who God was and who they were. Well, Exodus is not only a national story to give them identity, it's also an origin story of their nation. Uh, Where we began when we returned in the fall was uh, with a family of cowering slaves by the banks of the Red Sea who could do nothing to save themselves but wait and to listen and watch how God would save them, how God would do something for them that they couldn't do on their own. Part the waters, send them across on dry land, destroy the army of the world's superpower. It's quite a remarkable thing, if you think about it, it's without precedence that a country would tell the story on themselves. Every other country of the ancient world would describe an origin story of their nation as something heroic, a a god or a general fighting a battle, winning a war. Here, the Hebrews would do something absolutely unique in that they would become a nation after becoming enslaved. They would become a nation after becoming saved by someone, God, Yahweh, the great I am, someone who would do something for them that they could not do on their own. They would become a nation formed by grace. Through Jesus, and by extension, this story is also our story as well. But after this terrifying rescue, and speaking of origin stories, now they have to head into the wilderness Now, we tend to think of wilderness, we moderns, I I think we think of wilderness like North American people would think about wilderness, which is woods and wild animals. But instead, what I want you to imagine when it comes to the wilderness in the world, I want you to imagine a moonscape, a moonscape with with rocks and, and dirt and blinding sun and very little water. And there are two things that you can glean from a wilderness like this. First of all, you can appreciate the challenge of living there. The dirt hangs in your mouth and the sun beats down and it's a dangerous place. You can easily die uh, without, without carrying your water with you or finding an oasis or a spring. 
But also, this, this wilderness is not only a challenge to live in, but it's also a metaphor for the wilderness in our own lives. And what I mean by this is there's a vastness to this wilderness. There's a seemingly never-endingness to this wilderness. There's a quiet to this wilderness. There's a deadening reality to this wilderness. And this feels like real life to me. I like to say that at any given point in our lives, we're either in a crisis or headed out of a crisis or coming into a crisis, and this is another word for wilderness. I also like to say that the Hebrews invented history, and what I mean by this is, again, alone of the ancient people, they were the ones who started writing stories down that had a beginning and a middle and an end for the simple fact that they believed that if God did something once, God would do it again. You see, history has a way of repeating itself, but so does God. And so if wilderness happens in all of our lives, well, God also intervenes in all of our lives. And for this reason, I believe this is why Jesus had his, Jesus had his own wilderness experience. So what I want to do this morning is to begin with that story, the story of Jesus in his own wilderness after his baptism. We've got, we've got more than one account, but I'm going to choose Matthew's. Let's read it together. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. We know what wilderness means now, right? The challenge of it and then also the metaphor. To be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Three temptations of the devil in the wilderness represent three basic human desires, satisfaction, power, and wealth. And it's fitting that Jesus would quote Moses three times, three, three quotations from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a, is a collection of sermons from Moses as he began to reflect on his own experience in the wilderness. And they work this way. I made a little notepad here. You've got satisfaction, if you want to write these down. Satisfaction, bread, stones into bread. He responds with Deuteronomy 8.3, man should not live by bread alone. Okay, that's the first one. The second one is power, right? Devil takes him to the, to the pinnacle of the temple, throw yourself down, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. Don't test God. Finally, all the wealth, all the power in the world, all the wealth, all the kingdoms, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13. Serve only God. Three basic human desires were also encountered and thought through and responded to by Moses in the wilderness. Now, I also believe that this story of the wilderness connects us to Genesis as well. And if, uh, if Jesus' wilderness time harkens back what Moses learned, uh, there are other learnings as well. I came to this conclusion a few years ago on a trip to Jericho. What you're looking at is a wall. This is one of the original walls of Jericho, and this is the oldest inhabited city 
on planet Earth. This wall is some 10,000 years old. And as I've talked about in earlier podcasts, I believe with many scholars that Genesis 1 through 11 is a poetic description of our fall from some form of human existence, uh, living in family groups and moving, following herds and weather uh, for for millennia into something more mechanized, something more uh, stay it put. Uh, It was called the agrarian revolution where cities would have a wall around them and they would grow wheat. And 90% of people had to pick the wheat and to to toil over the wheat and to guard the wheat or perhaps even attack the wheat and steal the wheat. And then only a small group of people would be on top. And this is a humanity that would continue uh, forward. And it was not God's intention for his creation. And so he asked Abraham to step away from one of these cities and become a new humanity in relationship with God and with neighbor, generous, kind, forgiving, looking out for the stranger, looking out uh, for the poor. Uh, He asked Abraham to be different in the way that the Bible always asks us to be different. And it's no stretch to see that Jesus enters a wilderness time for these three temptations, satisfaction, power, and wealth in the shadow of this wall. The only thing in the wilderness of Judea is Jericho. And I don't think there's any mistake about it. Jesus encounters the devil and shows us a new way of being human in the shadow of what you might even call our original sin, which is the time when we begin to uh, build walls uh, and could walls of control and cease to be dependent upon God. And then remember the second temptation, right? The temptation uh, where, where the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle and says, throw yourself down and the angels will bear you up. I'll show you another picture. So that's a picture of Jericho. There's actually a pinnacle. The pinnacle is the southeast corner of the Temple Mount. You're looking at it right there in this picture. And and the reason why they called it the pinnacle is because it's the highest place over the Kidron Valley. So it goes down some 300 feet. And a, a person with a trumpet would stand on the corner of the pinnacle and would call the faithful to worship. And where I took this photograph, and if you're listening to the podcast, you'll just have to imagine uh, or, or dial this dial this video up. But I, I took this photograph from first century steps that Jesus would have been, had been dragged the night before he died. They had a sham of a trial in the dead of night because they needed him dead by sundown the next day. And so he, I'm looking at the pinnacle from exactly where Jesus would have looked at the pinnacle upon his arrest. And I wonder, I wonder, did he look up and remember Did he look up and remember the temptation? Did he look up and remember how the world always works? Did he look up and know that he was going the distance for us? Finally, being different so that we could be saved. I wonder. St. Paul would call Jesus the new Adam because he was thinking about Genesis and Exodus 2. But there are other connections to the wilderness as well, all through Scripture. I'll show you one famous one that gets right by us. It's part of the 23rd Psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You prepare a table before me, or you prepared us to table before me, we like to say it in the King James, in the presence of mine enemies. You know, that that phrase sounds like you give me a feast while my enemies have to look on. Like, I get to eat, but you get to watch. Uh, A few years ago, we took our ninth graders to uh, CFAT. CFAT is a 
thing up in North Alabama where they train missionaries for the foreign service, and it's run by the Methodist Church. It's pretty wonderful. And the reason why we take our ninth graders up there is because we want to teach them about real poverty, about global issues. And they have this exercise at the end where they pick one or two kids who who get to feast while the rest of us who've been starving for about 24 hours uh, get to look on. I always wondered uh, if the 23rd Psalm meant that or something else. Until recently, I've purchased uh, a copy of something written by Robert Alter called the Hebrew Bible. You can write the Hebrew Bible. It's the latest Uh, It's the latest translation of the Hebrew Bible, going as closely to the cadence and the poetry of biblical Hebrew as possible. They call it a magisterial event to to publish this thing, and it truly is remarkable. It's beautiful, and it's dense, and it's a beautiful commentary, and this is what Mr. Alter uh, says. He says, try listening to the phrase this way with the biblical Hebrew. You prepare a table before me in the face of my foes. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You prepare a table before me in the face of my foes. Sounds different. That doesn't sound like I get to eat while my enemies look on. It means that God feeds me in the wilderness. You feed me even out there. Moses said as much in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is basically a collection of sermons, and this is what Moses says here. Surely the Lord your God has blessed you in all your undertakings. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord has been with you. You have lacked nothing. See, that sounds a lot like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But there's a key word right in the middle. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. Knows. Know is a very important biblical word. It means, it means an intimate relationship. This is why it means the, the relationship between married people. This is, it, it means, he means he knows you. He knows your fears. He knows your hopes. He knows your frustrations. He knows uh, your deadening, your deadening boredom. He knows your joys. Now here's one conclusion then for this lesson, right? God feeds us in the wilderness, and lots of things can be wilderness. Like exile, it's the people needing the story to remind them to give them hope. How about this? The pandemic that we're living in can be seen as wilderness. You see, the Hebrews headed into the wilderness in a way that feels like real life to me. I mean, first there's a surprise hurt, a, a shock, a, a realization uh, that, uh, that, that they're suddenly ejected uh, from Egypt and, and perhaps Pharaoh's changed his mind, he's going to kill them, and then they turn around and, and now they're in a new reality. There's a surprise. And they rally together, but then comes the wilderness, which means loneliness and a moonscape of lost possibility. It's here where God feeds them. If we have eyes to see, If the wilderness seems vast and unending, if we have eyes to see, out in the clarity, out in the clean air of this kind of wilderness, which is a kind of a nothingness, we can be honest. We can see who we are, and we can see who God is. As a matter of fact, if we have eyes to see, we can see God working in their story as well. We can even see a reversal of the plagues that had been visited upon Egypt. Before I read a few pieces of scripture to you, I want to remind you of something that I believe to be true. God does not perform tricks to prove his existence. Rather, God simply heals because that's what happens in the presence of God. God simply saves because this is what happens in the presence of God. 
God simply guides because this is what happens in the presence of God. And their experience in their wilderness and our experience in our wilderness can be our witness to the world that this is so real. So let me show you what happens to them. Uh, You might get right by if you're not paying attention, but we'll start in Egypt with Exodus chapter 7. Water made bitter. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and of his officials, he lifted up his staff and struck the water in the river. And all the water in the river was turned to blood. And the fish in the river died. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink its water. There was blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. Okay, That's a plague visited upon the Egyptians. In the wilderness, they discover something else. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out of the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went for three days in the wilderness and found no water. Remember, you die without water out there. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. This is why it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What should we drink? He cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that are brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Water, water, water. Okay, here's the first plague undone, right? In Egypt, water is made bitter. There's a reason why Egypt is a super city, because it has water. Here in the desert, with no hope at all, they're given water, water made sweet. And then Moses gives them a statute and an ordinance. And this is before the Ten Commandments, but it reveals something very, very important about God's law. I think we moderns, especially we modern Christians, we get all tripped up when it comes to the Old Testament. We think it's the law of rules where Jesus is simply the law of grace. I mean, it's, it's not that simple. I mean, if we think about God's law at all, we, we tend to think of God as some sort of celestial sheriff just sitting up in heaven waiting for us to do wrong so he can shoot us, right? You broke one of my rules. You get the flu. Uh, it's not that way. The way that Moses describes it here in the desert, in the wilderness, in the clarifying time, if you will, is that God's law is like a big old umbrella. Just imagine a big one, a big golf umbrella. And and God's mercy is wide and fair and saving and safe. And when we step out from under the umbrella, we get wet. This is what happens. God's not doing anything. God is providing. We're the ones who wander and we fail. Okay, here's, here's another plague undone. Um, so let's go back to Egypt for a minute. So the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that hail may fall on the land of Egypt, on humans and animals and all the plants in the field in the land of Egypt. Well, we know how that turned out. Now let's go to the wilderness, to the clarifying time, right? If you've ever been in a desert like that, there's nothing to eat out there. Well, let's see what happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring it, there will be twice as much as what they gather on other days. So, all right, this is pretty cool. Hail falls in Egypt. Bread falls in the desert. 
Hey, you might be interested to know there's a little bit of science uh, that backs this up. There's a little scaly insect that lives on the tamarisk plant, uh, which grows in the wilderness. There's not a lot of plants, but there are a few. And this little scaly insect actually secretes something sweet. It's like a sweet, sticky dew that Bedouin uh, travelers bake into bread to this day. So manna is real. Uh, Again, in Egypt, God destroys food. In the wilderness, God gives food. See how God is working in, in amazing ways? Let's go back to Egypt for a minute. Locusts came upon all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such as a dense swarm of locusts had never been seen before, nor ever shall be again. They covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was black, and they ate all the plants of the land and the fruit of the trees that the hail had left, and nothing green was left, no tree, no plant in the field, and all the land of Egypt." I got hit in the head by a cicada the other day, and it scared me to death. I can only imagine a a, a locust uh, blocking out the sun, right? They cover the whole earth. Well, let's keep going. Let's go back into the wilderness. In the wilderness, in the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. Again, back in Egypt, locusts cover everything. In the wilderness, as frightening as it might be, quails came up, and it was food. For them to eat, and it was grace. Again, like the manna, there's just a little bit of science that's happening around here too. You might be interested to know that the Near East, the Middle East, Israel, and the neighboring countries around it are part of a flyover of migratory birds between Europe and Eastern Europe and Western Europe all the way down to Africa so that it's a place where they rest. A couple years ago, I was in Jerusalem and just sort of sitting on the balcony of my hotel room, uh, having a rest for a minute before the evening activities. And a tiny little bird, I think it was a wren, which is sleeping on the ground next to me. They get so tired, they just drop. And there's a pretty green park uh, in the center of Jerusalem over by the Knesset where they have nets. It didn't hurt the bird at all, but the, the, the birds are so tired, they just fall on the net and they catch them and they put them in a bag and they sleep. They sleep it off, but they pull it out and they put a little band on that so that bird watchers in Africa can track the birds and bird watchers as far away as Sweden can track the birds. And they depend on people in the Middle East to ban them because they're too tired. They're just so tired you pick them up. So here, even now, we see manna in the wilderness, and we see quails on the ground, and we see God providing, God providing. So wilderness time can be scary time, but it can also be a time to realize that when we're at the end of our rope, and we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, God will do something for us. In a way, the wilderness can be a gift. That may be a good discussion question for the end. All right, let's look at one more. Exodus chapter 17. This is back in the wilderness. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Remember, no water, you die. And the people quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? I guess wilderness is a time to complain too. But the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It's a good thing they didn't have social media in the wilderness. So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the 
elders of Israel with you and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that my people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And the answer to that question is, yep, the Lord is there. The same staff that Moses struck the Red Sea waters to part them and to kill the Egyptian army is the same staff that would save them in the end. God's hand is always among them. Here's our lesson today. Wilderness times can be deadening. They can seem vast. They can seem never-ending. But if we have eyes to see out in the clean air, out in the quiet, we will see grace, amazing grace for me again and again and again. Jesus had a wilderness time. The Israelites had a wilderness time. It's their origin story. We too, in our own wilderness, will discover who we are. Which brings us to our discussion questions. Have you ever been in the wilderness? Yeah, you have. Now, think about it. How? That's the first question. Second question. Looking back, can you see God's hand at work? Did you see a closed door with a window of opportunity? Were you fed? Were you given clarity or peace? Could you see God in a way that you wouldn't have seen before? Finally, how does God provide for you today? What has God given you? What will God give you? I hope I've given you some things to think about. I hope that we too can be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different. And I hope that we will see this wilderness time as an opportunity to grow. I'll see you next week and thank you so much.